As a prisoner of the Lord, I urge you, live a life that is worthy of the calling he has graciously extended to you. Be humble, be gentle, be patient. Tolerate one another in an atmosphere thick with love. Make every effort to preserve the unity the Spirit has already created with peace binding you together. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were all called to pursue one hope. There is one Lord Jesus, one living faith, one ceremonial washing through baptism, and one God, the Father over all who is above all, through all, and in all. This God has given to each of us grace in full measure according to the anointed's gift. It was the risen one who handed down to us such gifted leaders, some emissaries, some prophets, some evangelists, as well as some pastor teachers, so that God's people would be thoroughly equipped to minister and build up the body of the anointed one. These ministries will continue until we are united in faith and filled with the knowledge of the Son of God, until we stand mature in his teachings and fully formed in the likeness of the anointed, our liberating King. Then we will no longer be like children tossed around here and there upon ocean waves, picked up by every gust of religious teaching, spoken by liars or swindlers or deceivers. Instead, by truth spoken in love, we are to grow in every way into him, the anointed one, the head. He joins and holds together the whole body with its ligaments, providing the support needed so that each part works to its proper design to form a healthy, growing, and mature body that builds itself up in love. All right. Thank you, Stephanie. We have, since the fall, been talking about uh, this idea mostly on Sundays. We've had some uh, pauses here and there and have been paused from this for a few weeks, but we're going to get back into a few more weeks of finishing out kind of our school year long series on talking about the church. Oh, I'm so sorry. We changed our technology tonight and uh, there is no kids dismissal slide, but the kids can go. <laughs> I was like, it seems fuller in here than it usually does when I start talking. Good thing my wife is here to stand up and wave at me. Uh, I once at which wedding? I think it was the Posey, at Daniel and Emily Posey's wedding, I forgot to seat everybody, and Amy was, so. A little flashback. Um, not for as long as Brandon forgot to seat people at the Verbooms wedding, just for the record, which was the whole wedding um, that the family stood. He's not here to defend himself. Sorry, Brandon. Um, so we've been talking about what the church is and the different, different functions of this church kind of under the banner of this statement that we want to be people who are following Jesus in biblical community for the redemption of the world. And we spent some time talking about sort of the key parts of that, one being worship, the other being mission, which we're going to circle back to in, the, in sometime in the coming months uh, in some more intentional ways. And then finally talking about community. What does it look like to be and live in biblical community as the church. And so uh, I have two or three, or we have two or three sort of final things in this particular discussion about community that I want us to give some attention to before we move on to something else. Uh, some of those things are really practical, and uh, we have a couple of weeks of that coming up where we're going to talk about just some really practical aspects of community life together. Some are more 
about growing our understanding and about shaping our spirits toward one another and shaping our spirits toward the work that Jesus is doing in and among us as his people. And so what I want to do tonight is kind of focus on what this passage in Ephesians 4 tells us about our life together as God's people, as the people of Jesus, and the ways that I think we're intended, that God has always intended to grow us up in our faith, to mature us, to take us on that journey that we just sang about, where we're made more like Jesus, where we are uh, more grown up into the head, which is Jesus, by way of our life in the community of faith, of our life in the church. And so I'm going to give you just kind of like a big picture sense of what I think we learn and can pretty quickly distill out of this passage. This could be a sermon all in of itself, but I'm going to give it to you in like five statements really quickly. And then I want to look at in some specific ways what I think is here for us as a people. Okay. So here are some things that I think we find pretty clearly in this passage in Ephesians 4. The first and these are going to come on and off the screen as we look at the verses, but they'll all be there at the end for those of you who take notes and write things down. The calling we received in Jesus assumes community. The calling that Jesus places on our lives assumes that we will be people who live in community. And the, the sort of converse part of that statement is community is necessary for us to embrace and live into the hope of Jesus. And I think that's the message, the theme of these first seven verses. Paul says, I urge you, live a life that is worthy of the calling he has graciously extended to you. So his appeal is what Jesus has called you into, live a life that's worthy of it. And then he describes what he means, and it's very communal language. It's be humble, which is our, our posture toward one another. Be gentle, be patient, tolerate one another in an atmosphere thick with love. Make every effort to preserve the unity of the Spirit. The unity of the Spirit has already created with peace binding you together. There's one body and one Spirit just as you were all called to pursue one hope. There is one Lord Jesus, one living faith, one ceremonial washing through baptism, and one God, the Father over all, who is above all, through all, and in all. This God has given to each of us grace in full measure according to the anointed's gift. Paul ties really the sort of foundational doctrines of the faith, doctrines about God, doctrines about the gospel, to our life in community. And he says, live a life worthy of the calling that you have in Jesus. And the message there is that this calling that we have assumes that we're going to live it out in community and that community is necessary. It's a necessary part for us to live into that hope, okay? Second thing that I think is here, the resurrected Jesus gave us the church. Church is not something we came up with. It was given to us as a gift by Jesus. He gives the church what and who it needs to be healthy. So this is not dependent on us. It doesn't matter how silly or foolish we are. This is an act that Jesus is always committing. He is always working to equip the church for who and what it needs to be healthy, and we are the who. We are the people that have been given to the church for Jesus to act through to make the church what it's supposed to be, okay? Verses 11 and 12 say, it was the risen one 
The resurrection is tied in here. It was Jesus who, who rose from the dead, who handed down to us such gifted leaders, some emissaries, some prophets, some evangelists, as well as some pastor teachers, so that God's people would be thoroughly equipped to minister and build up the body of the anointed one. We're going to step back into this space. And one of the, I talked about um, that some of this would be practical. And we're going to come back uh, through 1 Corinthians 12 and some other passages that really talk about the different parts and the different giftings in the body. This is specifically pointing to leadership, but it's clear. I think it's, I think it's part of what Paul is saying here. It's definitely clear in the whole of the New Testament that that who that I refer to are not just people with titles or positions or with these very specific callings or giftings, that we are all essential members of the body with giftings and callings, and Jesus is working through all of us to make the church healthy, to make the church what it's supposed to be. Third thing that's here, the healthy church grows toward unity and maturity, that this is always the trajectory of the church. Verse 13 says, these ministries will continue until we are unified in faith and filled with the knowledge of the Son of God, until we stand mature in his teachings and fully formed in the likeness of the anointed, our liberating king. Fourth statement, the path to Christian maturity runs through community. This is the way that, that Jesus intends to grow us up in maturity in the faith. We just read verse 13, and Paul goes on to say, once we do grow up, once we become fully formed, once we become mature, then we will no longer be like children tossed around here and there upon ocean waves, picked up by every gust of religious teaching, spoken by liars or swindlers or deceivers. Instead, by truth spoken in love, we are to grow in every way into him, the anointed one, the head. The path to maturity in your faith runs through the community of faith. And then the last thing, uh, that I want to point out here is that one of the primary outcomes of the resurrection of Jesus rising and becoming who he became in the faith to us is unity of the body and maturity of its members. I have, I have 11 comma 16 there because those are the two verses I'm going to read to you. But really this full run from 11 through 16 makes this case in a detailed way. But verse 11, Paul invokes the risen one, the resurrected Jesus handed down to us what we have in the church. And then in verse 16, he comes back full circle and says, he, the risen one, the resurrected Jesus, the work he does in his resurrection is joining and holding together the whole body with its ligaments, providing the support needed so each part works to its proper design to form a healthy, growing, and mature body that builds itself up in love. I'll pop back to that if you're wanting to still write some of that down. So just to put some summary to all of that before I transition a little bit, you are called by Jesus to embrace the church's role in encouraging and enabling your maturity and also to be a loving part of helping others in the church to mature. That's part of the calling on your life is to embrace that work that the church does in your maturity and to participate in the work that the church does uh, in, in helping along the maturity of others. And the fact of the matter is, it is easier for us to sort of say yes to that in theory, to kind of give mental assent to that idea, than it is to actually live in it in the day-to-day -day when it gets into our space. It's easier to say, yes, that's clearly what the Scripture teaches, or yes, I believe that's true about the church, uh, than it is 
to embrace that when it moves into our space uh, where we prefer others to stay out of our business, where we don't relish getting into someone else's business, where we get wounded, where we avoid conflict, or where we engage conflict for purposes of self-defense rather than looking for ways to extend grace to each other, where we get tired and we lose sight of the need for doing all this hard stuff with people who we've kind of gotten tired of. It's hard to do this thing in those circumstances, which are the circumstances that most of us, if we don't live in them all the time, move in and out of with some regularity. But we're called by Jesus to another way. And I believe that we're called to that way because it's the way we were made for. I think it's sort of the shape of the soul is meant for this. Um, It's the way where our spirits find real life, I think. And I also think, also think it's important, as we talk about community, I think it's always important to have a mind toward the purpose of this is always missional. And so I think um, we're called to this way by Jesus also because this is the way of the kingdom that undoes all the enmity and harshness and unforgiveness that is rampant in the world. And we are people of a resistance to that reality in the world. We are, uh, even when it feels impossible for another way to win the day, we believe that resurrection empowers new life and forgiveness in our hearts and the world. And we're embodying that in a world that does not have capacity to see that, that does not any longer believe that those things are possible in any sort of real transformational way. So living a life worthy of the calling we received and growing up into Jesus means that we embrace the hard, awkward days that are necessary to get there. We don't hide when those moments come, when the hard parts of this come. We don't hide from them. We don't resist them. We don't run from them. Because if we do, we short circuit everything that Paul says Jesus is trying to do in the church. He's trying to do this work that requires us to be the body together. And he knows that that's happening among broken, sinful people who are going to hurt each other, who are going to get sick of each other, who are going to disagree. All of those things are a given. And Paul says, this is the work that the resurrected Jesus is doing. He is growing you up into maturity in the faith together. And so when we resist that, we, we create an interruption in that work that Jesus is going to do. He's going to do it with or without us. But in our space, in our own communities, in our own lives, uh, we get out of sync with that. Um, and that, that uh, causes us, by the way, to miss more than just a good church experience. It causes us, um, it causes more damage than just, well, we damage some relationships or friendships. We're actually interrupting the calling of Christ on our lives and in the life of the church when we resist that. And that's why uh, again and again and again around here, we try to press into a deeper understanding of biblical community, not because we have it mastered, but because we don't, (laughs) Uh, because we still have a growing up to do and we think there's real purpose in it, real gospel kingdom purpose in it. We haven't yet arrived. We believe though, that this is the field where real treasure is buried. And we found and lived on some of that treasure, but we're going to keep digging.
because we believe this is where life is. This is where Jesus established real life for the people of faith. So I want us to talk for just a few minutes about what it looks like to be people who understand the value and the need for wisdom and for maturity in the faith um, and in our lives, including that recognition that we're not yet completely mature and that you have a role in my maturity, that I have a role in your maturity. Um, life with Jesus in the body of Christ, which I think we've established um, for Jesus followers, life in the body of Christ is just life. It's the only option. It's not intended to be static. We're not made to stand still. We're made to grow. We're made to mature. We're made to move toward wholeness and completion all the time. No matter who you are, no matter how old you are, no matter how smart you are, no matter how experienced you are, no matter how spiritual you are, if you're still alive, you're not done. When it comes to maturity, when it comes to gaining wisdom, you still need maturity and wisdom. Um, in 2009, we bought an old house, uh, and um, I, that will forever uh, stand in my life story as a questionable decision. Um, I am not someone who is especially handy. Uh, my, my dad's name is, is Wayne, and um, my brothers and I, and now our wives, uh, that to say that you have Wayne Norvold something uh, is a thing. And you, when, you're, when your name becomes a verb like that, you know something special has happened. So when we say, I Wayne Norvold it, what we mean is uh, what we learned from our dad is not the correct way to fix things or to work things out, but the whatever functional way that we could get from broken to working <laughs> on something. And when you have an old, when you have old, old house, it's better if you actually know how to do stuff. And I learned this over and over and over again. Uh, and what I continued to run into was to deal with the problems that we had in our old house. Uh, I had to talk to people who knew more about all of these things than I did which uh, was often a source of embarrassment for me. So I had an electrician, just to give you one uh, example, I had an electrician, a guy named Bruce, who was terrific and retired, and um, I don't own a house anymore, and it's partially because Bruce retired and uh, is no longer available to me as an electrician. But he was always so helpful and so kind to me. But one time I was trying to deal with a problem that I was more involved than I intended to afford to pay Bruce to fix, but he was trying to tell me, you can, there's a, there's a kind of simple, not complete solution here, but there's something you can do. And it's helpful to know that when our house was built in 1953, it had electricity. And when I bought it in 2009, it still had exactly the same electricity that it had in 1953. Um, nothing was grounded. Things were wired in very strange ways. And uh, so anyway, in this particular case, when he's explaining to me, here's all you have to do. Um, and then he says something that I don't understand. And he's like, you got that right? And I say, sure. And he leaves. 
Um, and, you know, it's one of those times where you say, sure, that you know, why am I not just admitting that I have no idea what you just said, but something in you just doesn't want to admit. Um, and I did eventually figure it out, and I shocked myself 17 times <laughs> in the process of figuring it out. Um, we, uh, no matter how grown up we are, even if we're grown up for the bank to say you can legally buy a house, we all have a lot to learn, and we all tend to resist the revelation that we're not totally mature, or we don't know the things that it's expected that we might know. And I think the posture that Jesus is pushing us toward is a posture that says, I don't have all the wisdom I need, give it to me. And the, the clearest and uh, classic bi biblical example of this here is Solomon, who Solomon was educated, Solomon was wealthy, Solomon was privileged in every way that someone could be privileged at his time. He was the son of the king who became king, and yet with great focus and real emphasis, Solomon, when he's sort of going before the Lord to ask the Lord for what he needs to rule as king, he asks the Lord very clearly for wisdom and understanding, not for more wealth, not for more power, but for wisdom and understanding. And the Lord's response to that, 1 Kings chapter 3 tells us was this, it pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. God said to him, because you have asked this and have not asked for yourself long life or riches or for the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right, I now do according to your word. I'm going to do what, I, what you ask. Indeed, I give you why a wise and discerning mind. No one like you has been before you, and no one like you shall arise after you. The Bible repeatedly emphasizes the importance of wisdom in our lives. And Proverbs chapter 4 is uh, a really explicit example of this. It tells us not only the value of wisdom, but instructs us to go after it at all times. Get wisdom. Get insight. Do not forget nor turn away from the words of my mouth. Do not forsake her her being wisdom, and she will keep you. Love her, and she will guard you. The beginning of wisdom is this, get wisdom. And whatever else you get, get insight. Prize her highly, and she will exalt you. She will honor you if you embrace her. She will place on your head a fair garland. She will bestow on you a beautiful crown. Hear, my child, and accept my words, that the years of your life may be many. I have taught you the way of wisdom, I have led you in the paths of uprightness. When you walk, your step will not be hampered. And if you run, you will not stumble. Keep hold of instruction. Do not let go. Guard her, for she is your life. And this instruction from the scriptures, which shows up again and again and again, is not just for new believers, unbelievers, baby believers. There is an ongoing biblical admonition for all of us that we're always in need of wisdom, that we're always in need of the next step of growing up. In the parable of the sower, Jesus, in Luke chapter 8, Jesus describes four ways that we tend to see wisdom received even by his people, even by people who believe. Uh, he describes hard surfaces where we hear God's words, we hear wisdom uh, from the Lord, maybe from other people, but we don't really take it in. We, we hear it, but it doesn't become a part of us. Uh, he describes lives who are initially joyful at, and have a lot of enthusiasm and zeal about a word of wisdom, about words from the Lord, um, but who don't 
put down roots and grow deep. And I think the picture here is of someone who's just moving from one thing to the other so fast that there's no maturity that takes place. There are no roots that grow down. People who don't embrace the way of maturity because it's a way, it's a process that we have to embrace. It has to grow down into us so it doesn't stick. He describes people um, whose uh, lives indicate they tend to embrace wisdom and have really good intentions, but who get turned away by the ways of the world, who either consciously or subconsciously at some point choose that way over the way wisdom pointed them toward. Solomon is another good example of this. And then finally, Jesus describes the ones who, when they hear the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit patient, fruit with patient endurance. I love the way that uh, this is phrased in the message. He, he talks about people, the good hearts who seize the word and hold on no matter what, sticking with it until there's a harvest. There's a way of receiving the wisdom that God had for, has for us, and it's a way that recognizes a need to be patient and to let it do its work until it grows us up in maturity. And the ultimate picture of this, of course, is Jesus himself. We tend to think, what did Jesus have to learn? What maturing did Jesus need to do? But Hebrews 5 says this, when Jesus was on earth, a man of flesh and blood, he offered up prayers and pleas, groans and tears to the one who could save him from, from death. He was heard because he approached God with reverence. Although he was a son, Jesus learned obedience through the things he suffered. And once he was perfected through that suffering, he became the way of eternal salvation for all those who hear and follow him. For God appointed him to be a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Jesus himself embraced submission, humility, obedience. He embraced taking in wisdom and maturing and growing. And because of those things... God exalted him. God made him who he was. Um, and an interesting note here that right after the writer of Hebrews says this, he immediately talks about how the lack of these things, the lack of a willingness to embrace wisdom or maturity, lives not lived in submission or humility or obedience, leaves us immature and unable to understand and grow into the life that God has for us. Look at what he says. I have a lot more to say about this, but it may be hard for you to follow since you've become dull in your understanding. By this time, you ought to be teachers yourselves, yet I feel like you want me to reteach you the most basic things that God wants you to know. It's almost like you're a baby again, coddled at your mother's breast, nursing, not ready for solid food. No one who lives on milk alone can know the ins and outs of what it means to be righteous and pursue justice. That's because he is only a baby. But solid food is for those who have come of age, for those who have learned through practice to distinguish good from evil. And I think he's pointing us here uh, in no small part to the fact that for us to be these people that come of age, we have to be engaged in the life of the body because that's where Jesus is growing his people up. I understand frustrations with church. I understand the desire 
to, to sort of at times walk away from it and just say, I want this purity of experience of I'm just going to follow Jesus away from all of the disappointments and the hypocrisies and the dysfunction that happen in church. And all of those things, disappointments, hypocrisy, dysfunction are real in the church, even in the best group of people, because the church is still made up of people. But I want to be clear about this because I think the scriptures are clear. Jesus is doing the maturing work of his people among his gathered people, not separate from them. So this temptation to migrate out of the church so we can you know, purely embrace and know what's right and pursue justice and all of these things that we want to do without the interference of the flaws and the, and the struggles of church, I don't think is from Jesus. I think it's um, a long haul, this, this, if we're going to be people of justice, if we're going to be people who know what's right and who show the world what's right and who embody in the world what's right. It's a long haul, and it's full of the normal frustrations of being among people who are still maturing, who are still growing up, who still have incomplete wisdom and understanding, but the solid food and the real work of the world being made right, the real work of justice is going to come from the body of Christ as God's people grow up into maturity in Christ, not from outside of it. God will bring those things to pass, I think, when we follow the counsel of the scriptures and the model of Jesus and embrace our ongoing need for wisdom and maturity. And Paul speaks to this. It's the last passage I want us to look at tonight. Paul speaks to this even for those who have been in the faith for a long time and who have gained plenty of understanding and maturity along the way. He says this, I'm not there yet, nor have I become perfect, but I'm charging on to gain anything and everything the anointed one, Jesus, has in store for me. And nothing will stand in my way because he has grabbed me and won't let me go. Brothers and sisters, as I said, I know I have not arrived, but there's one thing I'm doing. I'm leaving my old life behind, putting everything on the line for this mission. I am sprinting toward the only goal that counts, to cross the line, to win the prize, and to hear God's call to resurrection life found exclusively in Jesus, the anointed. The ongoing humility that embraces the need for wisdom and maturity, not just directly from God, but from God through the ministry of his people is, of course, not easy. And I, I want to spend my last couple of minutes talking about how I think this works itself out into our lives and into our community. James 1, I'm not going to read it, but James 1 says that maturity requires perseverance, that we only get to maturity by persevering. Um, but he also says immediately after that, that if we lack wisdom, we should ask God for it. So this act, this, this process of persevering is not going to come up empty. It's, it's something that God is going to give to us when we're faithful and when we ask. And so there are two things I want us to understand here about that that word, that if we ask as we're persevering, that God will answer. The first is very, very obvious. To receive wisdom, which wisdom is deeply tied to maturity for all of us, we have to ask for it. We have to, to, to desire it, which means we have to be willing to admit 
that we lack it. That there are areas where we still need wisdom. The second thing I want to point out here is that there is an ease with which the scriptures talk about maturity and the lack of maturity that I don't think we possess. I think the scriptures talk really plainly about the fact that we need a certain kind of maturity and that we often lack it and that it is very difficult for us to use that kind of language about ourselves or to use it with each other. Uh, and here's why I think those two things are important, that, that we have to ask for wisdom and, and desire it and know we need it in order to get it, and, and that it's important for us to learn something from the scriptures, the way the scriptures talk about maturity. Our nature is to resist these challenges. We don't like to admit that we're lacking things when it, when it really matters. Uh, sure, we'll say as kind of a general confession, um, because what kind of jerk says they know everything, Right? Uh, but when we're proceeding through life and someone steps in and suggests we might be getting it wrong, we're prone to resist that. And to go another step into that, uh, we are not always good at proactively asking people to step into our lives and to help us gain wisdom and to help us mature and to step in one more step. After we do this together for a while, as many of us have, we know what's wrong with each other. <laughs> Uh, we find reasons to distrust and to disqualify each other. And instead of dealing with that stuff and believing that God's purposes for his church being a source of wisdom and an agent of maturity for me are not going to be thwarted by your silly sins, I pull back and I focus on what's wrong with you instead of leaning into this, what I just absolutely basic Christian belief that God has forever been working his goodness in and through broken people just like you, just like me. And we reject. I mean, that's just one of the most obvious things that God has always been acting through broken people. But if I can find something broken about you, it becomes a reason for me to put up a wall and to resist you helping me mature or giving me wisdom. And even if we have developed some habits that embrace some of this, I think we're often still very uncomfortable calling it what it is. We don't like to have someone suggest that we're lacking wisdom in some area or that we need to grow up in some area. Unless it's like these pet, we all have probably these pet areas where we're willing to say, yeah, I'm, that's kind of a weakness of mine. But if this comes in any other space that we think, I'm okay here or I'm, I'm pretty wise or mature here, we don't like to have someone suggest otherwise. And the scripture is clear that we don't always know ourselves. <laughs> and so we need that. And so I just want to say, even as an elder, this is not an accusation because I carry this same struggle with you, but even as an elder and as a pastor in this community, I know to be very careful using words like immature or lacking wisdom among us. And I'm not sure that we should, should be tiptoeing around each other in that area quite so much. I, I think we, as a group of people over time, have actually become, uh, gotten pretty good at this whole seeking and receiving counsel thing. So this is not like some condemning message, um, at least relative to other groups of Christians I've been a part of over the years. I think we're pretty good at this. Um, 
But this is still an area where it feels like if, if, if we talk about maturity in an honest way, that we're going to really step on each other's toes. And the Bible uses that language all the time. Um, and we will, in theory, admit we don't have it all. So why are we so sensitive to being able to talk openly about this? And I think the question for us is, is that sensitivity worth what it costs us? So I want to encourage you this week to think about those questions and reflect on the words of Ephesians 4 where we're told to be humble and gentle and loving. We're told that we're growing into, we're in the process of growing into unity with the body, that God made us unique and diverse to empower that unity in the body and that that leads us to maturity where we speak truthfully in the safety of a loving body growing into completion in Jesus. And think about the individual and the communal aspects of all of this. Individually, maturity is about becoming more like Jesus. And to become more like him, we have to be comfortable with the reality that we're less like him than we need to be. That means we need to be humble and not just selectively humble, not just like the idea of humility, but sincerely humble when something's at stake that we care about. We have to be like Solomon and ask God for discernment, for wisdom, more than comfort. That I want that more than I want my own comfort. We have to embrace the moments when our immaturity is exposed. This is a hard one, but, but I think it's so clear if we'll be honest with ourselves. We have to embrace these moments when our, our areas of immaturity are exposed in the presence of God and his people because that's the opportunity to become more mature, to become more like Jesus. That's God's, if you are praying for wisdom, if you are praying for growth, your immaturity and lack of wisdom being exposed is God's answer to, answer to that prayer. Our immaturity being exposed before others is God's answer to our prayer for wisdom and growth. It's him saying, here it is. Let me give it to you. We have to stop fighting it. We can't grow into maturity individual, individually in our faith in Jesus if we refuse to talk about or let others talk about that in an honest way in our life. If we insist that no one ever suggests that I lack maturity in these ways that I care about. Okay. Last thing I'll say is this. Um, th there are communal dy dynamics to this for sure. The biggest obstacle to everything I just said, <laughs> the biggest difficulty for us in everything I just said is fear. And fear, the scriptures tell us, lives and grows in the absence of love. And I think we could say, as complicated people, fear lives and grows in the absence of confidence that we are loved. It's love that makes all of this possible. We can embrace these moments where our immaturity is exposed and maturity is available to us as God's love for us when we trust that we're really going to be loved by the people around us. And that's not just an individual project. So this is not a moment for us to just look at each other and go, you should be more okay with us talking about your immaturity. This is a challenge to all of us to be sure that we're loving one another in the way that we're called to so people feel safe, are confident that what's coming in those moments is, is love and maturity. And that maturity means, as Paul says, that we form a healthy, growing, and mature body that builds itself up 
in love, that we're growing toward love being made complete in us, and that we can build ourselves up in love only when we live for the long haul alongside others who we love and who we're confident love us. Let's pray. Father, we all um, are rather quick to acknowledge that we don't have it all together, that we don't know everything, and that we have need. And I think it's uh, easier in theory for us to acknowledge that as it relates to you. Um, any of us who call ourselves Christians understand at some fundamental level the difference between us and you. And so to say that you have things we need is, is an easy step. And, but we still resist it in our spirits, so I pray that you would break down that resistance and that we would be people who are open and vulnerable with you, first of all. And then that we would be people who embrace what you said you're doing, which is working toward this beautiful picture of unity and maturity of your body in you. And where we are broken and sinful in the way that we live that out with each other draws to repentance. Thank you.